0: Alright everyone, welcome back. Today's guest is our first returning guest ever, and it's almost at our 1-year anniversary of our first podcast episode, which was episode 10 and was all about having uncomfortable, getting comfortable having uncomfortable conversations. So please welcome back Jenny J to the podcast. Hello, hello. It is so nice to be back. I know. I'm so glad we're doing this because after I re-listened to our episode this morning, And it was so funny that even listening to myself in that episode, trying so hard to get things right, that I almost was like speaking over you trying to get things right. It was important for me. I honestly thought that I did so well during that episode. And then listening back, it actually really showed a lot of I don't know. I'm going to pat my own back for like two seconds, but progression in the way that how wrong I was in some of the ways that I approached things. So I thought, you know, we talked about the fact of you coming back on and let's kind of do an update on all of this. And I'm so stoked we're doing that because I think as much as we had some really great conversation a year ago, so much has happened since then. So much has happened and obviously the world and, and it's really exciting to have you back.
1: Yeah, I I re-listened to the the podcast episode just before this re-recording as well. And it was it was so interesting just to hear mm-hmm. it back and just mm-hmm. see the way I also would navigate a conversation. I think in a different time and space when like the information just wasn't out there so yeah so readily and people weren't necessarily hungry to listen to it. So I also yes. heard myself really either like tone policing or holding back or saying things in a much more delicate way, I think maybe, than the way yes. I would say it now. I
0: 100% agree with you. And it was interesting because I, I listened to that episode this morning right after reading a post by Monique Melton talking about how white people keep talking about having safe places for conversations around mm-hmm. race. And she was kind of calling out the fact that like, you should go read her posts. First of all, I'm not going to like try and like copy and paste here, but kind of talking about the fact that even when we say we're going to have safe conversations, it's reiterating this, that there's a dangerous conversation, that there's a dangerous form of it. and, And it kind of instills that racism once again. So I even felt that when I had you on was that I kind of wanted it to be you because that made me feel comfortable because i knew that you were a friend and that i knew that you would like call me in on stuff but it would still feel like safe and okay and even just now sitting now where i'm just like no like i, I that's something again to push through and to yeah so it was it's interesting even hearing your own changes in that because last time we spoke a big thing you were like i'm not an activist so first of all let's just reintroduce you and tell people who the heck you are and what is it
1: you do? So my name is Jenny J. I am a photographer, a videographer, and a storyteller at its core. And I am very much an activist. So that has definitely, Mm, definitely changed. changed. I'm, I'm fully stepped into the role and into the identity of what it means to be an activist.
0: But you're an incredible storyteller as well. And I think that because you have that ability, and I get your emails now, and because you have this ability to storytell, it really kind of weaves in these messages in a way that feels, I guess, more within reach or more mm-hmm. of, a, of a depth of understanding, where I think a lot of times we're hearing blanket statements and they kind of and, and it's not intended to be that way, but with all the social media buzzwords, I mean, how quickly this kind of happens. and And all mm-hmm. the time it kind of happens. Even take, for instance, you know, the word triggered, which in mental health words is something you use to tell people when something was being said that was literally triggering your mental health issues. And mm-hmm. I have PTSD. So like the word trigger was huge for me. And then all of a sudden my kids were using it as like a slang. And I was like, what just happened? Like, how did it just become so normalized in that mm-hmm. way? And and sometimes not to compare it the two, but at the same time, I'm recognizing that there's a lot of language being thrown around. Mm-hmm. A lot of things like privilege and allyship and anti-racism. And they're kind of getting blanketed in a way that we're not fully getting the depth of everything all the time. So I really love that your content has kind of brought some depth and perception from, you know what, a person of color who is also not black. So mm-hmm. it's been, it, you kind of have some experiences, but you also speak out on, you know, trans issues. You've spoken out on different forms of, you know, event space, workspace, racism in Canada, Indigenous folks. Like you, you haven't really stopped in one arena. You've kind of really pushed yourself in a lot of different ways. And I've been learning so much from you, truly, truly. So it's why you're one of my favorite humans, because it's just like time and time again, I feel like I'm coming away with so much From you, which so just huge thank you for that and a huge kind of plug for you know more people. (laughs) Just kind of plug in there. Sign up for your emails. Seriously, your emails are unreal. They're really really great. But I want to talk to you. So in in this last year, what kind of changed? What what made it that it took you from that space of being I'm not really an activist to yes I am? What changed for you? So
1: the biggest catalyst. Of that change, I think was actually our conversation. Ooh. And the reason I say the biggest catalyst was that was because when the podcast episode came out, I had never experienced the kind of folks who entered like my social media world, who were all very just like, this opened my eyes, and now I am listening. And it was the Mm. first time I had experienced that. So that's happened in waves now throughout the course of the last year and especially um, kind of in the wake of a lot of things in the last few weeks. But Mm -hmm. that was the very first time. And so really understanding that Okay, like there are people who understand that they don't have the language yet. There are people who still don't really see their own privilege. However, they understand somehow, somewhere in the middle of all of that, that there is work to be done. For me, especially in navigating like activism in university, the reason I didn't want to call myself an activist is because I saw the way activist spaces work. And activist spaces and a lot of the activists I knew were often really exhausting to be around. And that is what I didn't like. So something that I really wanted to foster in a community that I created and in the way that I spoke about things was really the space for learning the space for understanding okay like when you have the intention how are you going to actually put action behind it and mm-hmm. it's really hard because again like I was watching this video recently about how you know there are people of color and black folks who are being thanked for being so kind and being so gentle and that's it's not that shouldn't be something that is thanked mm-hmm. and at the same time like, I know that people listen more because of the way that I have conditioned myself to speak. So if I can at least use all of those years of conditioning myself to speak in a certain way to actually get information across. And I think a part of it is also the storytelling, too. So it definitely goes hand in hand, but it definitely is a in part the way that I've conditioned myself to speak so that I know people will listen to me. And so kind of realizing that somewhere along last year that there were folks listening and understanding the things that I was saying really made me realize how important it is that when I say something, people are able to take action and people are able to learn and walk away with something. And I think like that allowed me to actually get rid of the fear because there is so much fear. Let's take a quick
0: pause to talk about today's sponsor, Liquid IV, and I want to talk about hydration and dehydration in general. I'm not going to lie to you guys. I just got this new water bottle that has like hourly increments as to what you're supposed to be drinking, and I was appalled at myself at how little I was actually meeting those targets while thinking I was doing such a good job, but this isn't uncommon. Dehydration occurs daily in three out of four people. But with liquid IV, you have the fastest, most efficient way to stay hydrated because each serving helps you get as much hydration as two to three bottles of water. Proper hydration is crucial for your immune system and can boost your immunity. With liquid IV, you have the fastest, most efficient way to stay hydrated. Plus it's packed with potassium, vitamin C, and other vitamins known to help your body defend against infections. I personally love liquid IV. It's my go-to when I've realized mid-afternoon that I have not been meeting my water targets, that I need hydration and I need it quickly. Lemon lime is by far my favorite because I love that tart little taste to it, while it's still sweet. Just makes me feel like lemonade in the summer. I've been enjoying it almost daily. It's really, really good. And to be honest, hydration really impacts so much more than our just our bodies and our life. It impacts our skin, our sleep. It helps with our workouts. There's so many differences that you can noticeably and tangibly feel once you've really figured out your hydration. Like I said, three out of four people are suffering from dehydration and probably like me, don't even realize it's happening. With those five essential vitamins, it has more vitamin C than an orange, as much potassium as a banana. It's healthier than sugary sports drinks with no artificial flavors or preservatives and less sugar than an apple. It's made with clean ingredients, non-GMO, vegan, and free of gluten, dairy, and soy. It's the perfect balance to help you hydrate more quickly and effectively than water alone. All you have to do is take one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water, and that's going to be equal to two to three bottles of plain water. But Liquid IV is also on a mission to change the world, donating 2.3 million servings in response to COVID-19. Products are being donated to hospitals, first responders, Food banks, veterans, and active military. Liquid IV is available nationwide at Costco and Target. Or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code PAPAYA at checkout. That's 25% off anything when you order and use the code PAPAYA at liquidiv.com. So go get better hydration today. Liquidiv.com, promo code PAPAYA. Now let's get back to the show friends. I'm Jackie Schimmel, philanthropist, motivational speaker, glowing wife, animal rights activist, and a shoulder to cry on. Not really. I'm a crazy bitch, but a hoot and a half. If you haven't listened to my podcast, The Bitch Bible, brace yourself, pour yourself a stiff drink and get ready to laugh your ass off or cry. Make sure you subscribe yourself to the Bitch
1: Bible podcast right now. You're going to effing love it. When you're saying things that people are afraid of, it's really easy for people to attack it, for people mm. to get defensive. And I don't have a mental capacity or energy to navigate other people's fragility. And I didn't have that. And so for me, it was really about how do I create a space where we're not, we're not sitting in, in fragility and instead actually sitting in action. And so once that started actually happening and the more like by piece by piece, that started growing it made me realize that like this was really important and like at the end of it yes i'm a photographer yes i'm a videographer but these stories and being able to say these words or write these words and amplify all of these stories that have been around me and that i've had around me my whole life is really 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 important and so now i can't separate the two and now my business and like this work is completely hand in hand, and I wouldn't want it any other way. How have you found it, though? I know you spoke on it a little bit on
0: your page, but the fact that within especially the last month, and because you were kind of giving a lot of and sharing this information and learnings, you had a lot of white women kind of flood your page. How did that feel for you? Like, be real, be honest. We understand, like, yes, I have a majority white female audience, but I think it's important for us to also understand how that also feels on the receiving end of that because I've heard an array of different, you know, their own personal experiences on how that felt. And I just kind of wanted your own take.
1: Not filtering it feels violent. And it feels Mm. violent in the sense of it not being an outwards violence. I have no other words than to say that it feels violent because it feels like it comes from a place of self-serving rather Mm -hmm. than a place of, I genuinely care about who you are as a person. And of course, that's a blanket statement. I'm painting with a wide stroke brush here, but when there's that kind of growth of a very specific demographic of people as a result of something like George Floyd and Amy Cooper, and also what was happening with body positivity at the same time, like Mm -hmm. all of these things where the message is diversify your feeds. And that's almost like the one step that's being taken. And again, diversifying your feeds is absolutely important. Like that you should not only be seeing one certain type of body type or skin tone on your feeds, but When that is the action that's being taken, and then you have no idea if they're really there to listen to who you are as a person and your stories, it just feels like a lot of people coming to take. And I think that's the violence of it. But at the same time, I remember like sitting there being really grateful, and I've almost like trained myself to be really grateful when white folks listen, which is what I'm unpacking, like I'm really unpacking what that means. Um, Because, you know, like even when we recorded our podcast, I was telling myself, you know, at the end of the day, she has a really white audience and they're going to listen and I should be grateful for that. So don't look too critically if there are going to be a few things. Like don't, you know, give it some grace if not everything is going to be perfect because you should be grateful that white folks are listening to you. And that's what I've conditioned myself to for a really long time. So even my first instinct was to really center the audience that I was having. And I had to have really hard conversations with my friends and my mentors who were really just like, you need to center your own voice. Because the second I center a white audience, I am centering whiteness again. I am centering the very thing that we're trying to de-center and work towards unlearning. So... That yeah, and I think that's so, so important.
0: And I think that's important just to—not to generalize that one thing, because I think that that needs to be held on its own thing. Mm-hmm. But that happens a lot to people where they gain a following off of one post or one viral message, mm-hmm. and they feel niched to it forever, and they feel almost chained to it. And that that shouldn't be what's happening because— at the end of the day, you are human. I want to hear about your love life. I want to hear about your work experiences. Like you are still a human that I follow, and I shouldn't be just there because you give me really great information on race topics and mm-hmm. you know gender topics and body topics. It's it that that can't be it. And I yeah. think that when we are taking in on social media, I think right now it feels especially confusing, which is Mm -hmm. okay to be confused because we're not sure if we should be vocalizing support or sitting back and listening. And that can be a really interesting kind of new realm as well. And I felt for myself when I've been following some new accounts and stuff as well, not trying to comment on everything right at the beginning. Like, get to know this person. And like at the end of the day, like do I actually align with them and follow them for the right reasons or am I doing it yeah. because I feel like I was supposed to so that I look like a better white woman? Like, there's a lot to kind of take in and acknowledge when we are following people, especially when we're following them in a time like this, mm-hmm. what is our intention? What does it look like at the end of the day? And what do we take away? And so I think a lot of us did this, like, we need to follow as many as possible. <laughs> I was so was a part of that. I think there was a bit of an internal panic where it's like, I'm I'm not doing enough. I'm not being mm-hmm. diverse enough. I followed enough Black women in a span of 24 hours that I started getting like ads for black women, like in terms of like their hair care products and hair wraps. And I was like, well, at least I've tricked the algorithm like a little bit here because that's kind of what happens is the ads actually pay attention to your behavior. They pay Mm -hmm. attention to who you are, what you're participating in online. So when you're like, I follow a lot of these people, but they never show up in my feed. A lot of that's because we follow them just trying to follow them or not actually taking in their content, scrolling back, hearing their stories, taking time to get to know them as a person and then jumping in and suddenly asking questions and being curious without, you know, taking that step. I remember, when that first episode you did with us, when you said, you know, everyone has Google, it's free 99. I'll never forget that because, and what I've been trying to, you know, also remind myself of that, not to ask these questions at it, waiting to be educated or looking at people of color as a resource and instead looking them at, them as human beings with stories that are nothing like ours that we can sit and listen to. And then go and Google the stuff you don't know. And I even, if you go back and listen to our episode, I literally asked you questions about, you know, what your ethnicity was and all of these different things that I realize now were none of my business to be asking. But (laughs) like, I listened and I was like, no, you didn't. You did not ask what was adorned on her head and why. Like, no, you didn't. But... Like and honestly, this is the one thing I have to say. This, do you know? Like I was saying, this to some of my fellow white women. I know, sorry. I'm dying here. But when you go through a breakup and like you find out on the other side, like you found out the things that you've been doing. And I think a lot of times, like and the reasons why this relationship isn't working out, right? And you hear all this information and it sucks because you can't fix it. You can't go back, be a different person. I can't go back and unask black women to touch their hair. I can't go back and like rethink and and rewire the way that my brain was before. Like Mm -hmm. you can't take these things back and it's really hard and it's okay that it's hard. It should be hard that we are now learning how much we screwed up and how much we were doing wrong and in a place of privilege. And because Black, Indigenous, people of color had felt no safety in speaking back to us and saying, you know what? That actually makes me uncomfortable
1: because what would we have done?
0: I would have been like, well, that's not my problem. Like, it's—anyways—
1: I'm laughing so hard Please do. because for context, we didn't know each other as well as we do now when we were recording yeah, we, the podcast. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and so I just- We met at an event, yeah. Yeah, and I remember when you asked, you know, like when we started the podcast with you asking me what was the dirt on my forehead, I was just taken aback for like, a little second. I was like, okay, okay, we're starting here. Okay, that's go. okay. <laughs> and it was so funny because I had a conversation with one of my really close friends afterwards and, and privately. And I was like, it was really good. But I just wish, like, why did it have, like, I just said, why did it have to start that way? But it's okay because the conversation was really good. And I know people are listening. And again, that that's like me conditioning myself to be so grateful mm-hmm. that people were listening. But again, like one year ago, I don't know that your audience or, like, it, it felt like a white audience at all would be listen, like, willing to reckon with their privilege and willing to actually listen to these ideas um, had it not come from, I think, like, that way. So, I like, I listen back and I'm like, ooh, like, I know that Sarah is going to be cringing when she hears back this one part. But uh, it's, it's
0: a cringe moment. It was, it was like, it was like in the breakups when you find out that really crappy thing you did, that was probably really bad. But I mean, this is, this is so interesting because I think you now would have been like, you know what, that's actually not an appropriate question to ask me. And I would be exactly. <laughs> so it's like, it, I'm kind of grateful that we're now in this place. And and the one thing that I've noticed the most, um, in terms of being a white woman in social media right now is there's mm-hmm. a lot of mistrust and, mm-hmm. I've kind of really, there was one person that kind of said to me, like, what we have to do is set aside our reputations and set aside like our defensiveness and let people mistrust us. And Mm -hmm. I've kind of been clinging to that. And, and, you know, hearing your own stories with that is such an interesting thing. And because you now do have uh, such a white audience, I've actually noticed you kind of talking into things that are complete blind spots for a lot of us. One that was huge for me was you talked about these kind of white adopted cultural practices that are of indigenous roots, mm-hmm. talking about burning of sage, which is like a huge, huge, I didn't even know, like, it, honestly, I've been sent them as gifts. It's like, it been a, you see them at like chapters now. With the, It's like this normal thing. Very commercial. It actually has really, yeah. So when it comes to things like that, how do you educate, How? Do, what is like your ways of educating
1: yourself in spaces that you don't even know about? I like am such an academic reader. So Are you? Ooh, I jealous. like you, the amount of papers and links to papers that actually are on open tabs that I am constantly reading is probably a little bit ridiculous, but I read so much on my own time that. When I'm actually sitting down to write something that ends up being like a social media post on, Mm -hmm. let's say, saging, what's actually behind that is either months of like reading different things and then hours of making sure I do it justice. Because Mm. for me, it's really about not speaking for the community, not speaking as if I know what it means to be a part of that community and see like how it's being appropriated, but really being able to say as someone who is a non-Black person of color, who experiences a lot of people in the wellness space, I'm tired of seeing something to me that is very obvious appropriation. So Mm -hmm. here are the facts and the like the knowledge of what is happening that also centers like the space I live in. So Canada and here is everything that I can tell you without actually speaking for the community. But behind all of that, like there are articles that I've read. There is like hours of different papers. So behind every single thing now, like there's hours of research and reading, because to me, it's so important to actually distill all of that very academic theory into tangible ways that we can stop perpetuating harm.
0: And I think that's an important thing to hear because I think a lot of us white folk especially are trying to get it right. And Mm -hmm. we're trying to just rush to those answers. You know, we saw the surge of everyone buying books like Me and White Supremacy, which I'm reading right now. But there, I even felt it there was a bit of a rush to I need to finish this book because I need to have this knowledge asAP because yeah. I need to start like I need to start being better I need, and like yes but also knowing that even someone like you who is educating in those spaces in big ways, you spend months, like it's not, it's not just something you read in a post yesterday and you regurgitate today. No. It is months of learning and it's years of, of learning. And it's kind of a big part. And, and, and I think one thing that I'm really struggling with is seeing how much fatigue there already is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't say that I haven't felt it. It's definitely, I think in that, especially those first couple weekends. I don't know that I slept properly. I was just, it it was, you're hearing a lot and it was a lot. And, but it's not my place to say that like, it was, this is too much for me. It was just like, you kind of had to sit there and have those moments. But at the same time, I saw like this surge. And then now it's like, here's what I found really interesting. And there's a whole, I talked with a few other friends about it is as we were talking about race issues, the following and the the watch and the engagement went down dramatically. So there was like a resistance to, I don't even want to hear this or I'm already tired of hearing it. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, receiving messages of, can't you just go back to your normal content? Like, I just really don't, like it's too much that you're doing all of this stuff right now. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you know, there's the, you're not doing enough. And, and, it, and it can be really... It is really overwhelming. But what would you say is going for, in your opinion, as somebody who's kind of been doing this work for a long time, how do we keep going? Like, how do we keep going? And how do we kind of like let our exhaustion and fragility and fatigue feel like it's taking over and causing us to use that as an excuse to stop?
1: I think, okay, that's a loaded question. So I'm going to break it down a few ways. So firstly, I think that as folks who are not Black, we need to find spaces within our own communities where we can unpack our feelings. Mm. Because that's really important. And so that is really what organizing looks like. So I have a space with some other really amazing South Asian activists where we have Zoom calls and we talk about our feelings. And we're not putting the burden of our trauma or our unpacking on anyone else but our little mm. collective. Yes. So I think especially right now when a lot of white women are navigating and unpacking, have you they created spaces for yourselves to talk about all these things that allow it to be un- unpacked without it falling on the weight of the world or on the weight of black and indigenous and people of color. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that is really, really important in terms of people being able to unpack all of that and then just feel lighter around all of that because I think it is important to think about your individual self in your mental capacity when we're talking about how to do social activism online. The other part is to really recognize when you have the energy and capacity to not only write and share something but to also manage a comment section. Because one of the things that can be almost even more damaging is when you put something out there and the comment section is filled with hate or the comment Mm. section is filled with things that are refuting against it. So I wrote something recently in regards to JK Rowling. And I love that that post. It's taken a life of its own, Sarah. I like. Really? I, I have to go read the comments. It's. Oh, it's the whole comment
0: section. I didn't realize there was even a debate there. Like,
1: It's like more than 50,000 people have seen it, which is like a lot in like the world of my metrics. And there are still conversations happening. And it's really the reason I've left a lot of it up, like unless it was directly hateful, that just it goes right away. Because (laughs) there are a lot of spaces in those comment sections to really understand the nuances of gender but without like being able to at least like monitor like what are the conversations happening if it's turning hateful then that can be damaging as well so you have to monitor yeah. your own energy levels to see if you have that capacity to do it and I think that's really really important. Can you kind of quickly
0: explain what the J.K. Rowling thing was, just for those who are listening and maybe live under
1: a rock? J.K. Rowling has been saying anti-trans sentiments since 2017. She has been accidentally liking tweets that's apparently a middle-aged moment of her slipping her finger and hitting like on like a transphobic tweet and supporting folks with just, like, transphobic sentiments, and it's been, like, bubbling for the last two years, and she finally started saying a lot of things on Twitter in June of 2020, like, end of May, June of 2020, and then she published a full-on essay, like, a full essay that actually like to reads- so, yeah, so the full essay is uh, she titled it turf wars because she's accused of being a turf, which is a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. So, okay. someone who thinks that being a woman and being a female should be one and the same and like you associate womanness with the biological female body. So, she wrote a full on essay and it's so the way she writes this essay is so dangerous because she's very articulate. And she articulates this essay like if you actually don't know what she's saying or the statistics that she's pulling up or why there are are fallacies in her statements, it reads like an excellent argument,
0: which is which
1: is what is. Especially dangerous because she has such a huge audience. She has a really, really queer audience also because, like, wizards and magic and like all of that is so also kind of embedded into queer culture. And so, for the fact that she was saying all those statements, it was really, really hurtful and harmful. And, you know, just speaks to all of the things and conversations that are happening right now where she was kind of making these statements that she's like, I've done all the readings, I've read all the things, and here are still my beliefs.
0: Which is really dangerous because we know now, even within the Black community, trans are a highest risk for being murdered. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's, a, it's an insane number. Like, it shouldn't be. And it is so, so, so high mm-hmm. that it is like, no longer is it even, in a, to me, opinion or not, their lives, like they're human lives. And so these are human lives that whether or not you morally agree or whatever you want to say in your realm of reasoning as to why you don't agree, we still have to fight for those lives. We still exactly. like that it doesn't it has to take a backseat to everything. But kind of piggybacking on what you said about someone being incredibly articulate and how kind of dangerous that is. Mm-hmm. it brings me into another person who has been incredibly articulate. incredibly well-spoken that it's really swayed a lot of people into anti-blackness, which is Candace Owens. Dear Lord. Oh, (laughs) but like how (sighs) in an age where we're trying to educate ourselves Mm -hmm. and we're trying to listen and learn, where do we, like, this is what gets, because a lot of people have been sending me her work being like, but have you considered? And it's like, oh my gosh, but You have to still be critical thinking, like Mm -hmm. you you have to be critical in thinking into even the information you're getting from well articulated, high up people, wealthy, educated, whatever it is, we have to be so careful about just adhering to that information. Because Candace Owens is a Black woman Mm -hmm. who basically speaks out on Black culture and why it's like its own problem, essentially, and, and kind of blames people like George Floyd for their own death, blames kind of the black community for the problems that they have and is is feeding into it. And who loves that message? Really white people. Like they really love hearing. Trump loves it.
1: This, Trump, is, Trump is a big fan. Oh,
0: there's a, there's a lot of people like that. And it kind of goes into, again, this mm-hmm. other kind of conversation and something you brought up on social media, which is exceptionalism. And like this, you you know, you use Oprah as a reference. Mm-hmm. Well, if Oprah can do it, any black woman can do it. If this person can do it, anybody can do that. Why is that simply not true? So, yes, one, here, be careful about the information you're taking in, even by articulated people and people that you adore, like J.K. Rowling and and black women like Candace Owens. Like we still have to be really critical in our thinking. But part two. How do we navigate this exceptionalism thinking and using it as a means for us to kind of say, well, it's, there's other people who have done it, and, and we love them, mm-hmm. so why is that still an issue?
1: So with someone like Candace Owens and all of that, I the biggest thing that I like to say is or i like to point out is that from my understanding of having a lot of our conversations, especially with very conservative folks, I noticed that a lot of people who do lean more on the conservative side like facts, statistics, numbers and figures mm-hmm. as points of argument or like where they get the kind of validation for the sentiments that they might have. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, folks that are a lot more right-leaning and more liberal and also really, truly understand these issues are speaking from experiences and anecdotal evidence. And the biggest thing to note is there isn't actually enough statistics out there, especially in Canada, in terms of the experiences that Black and Indigenous people of color have, in terms of what the actual numbers are, there is not data. So the data that's being presented for someone trying to like, understand it on the left, I suppose, like conservative viewpoints, there isn't like equivalent data to match and explain that when you're talking about the experiences of BIPOC. And... Mm a lot of the arguments that are happening are almost like two people speaking in different languages. And so it's really important, number one, to recognize that, but also two, to really push for either data or statistics or like things that are tangible that show almost the anecdotal evidence and or... Really help people understand why they simply have to li- listen to the anecdotal evidence and why that should be evidence enough that there is a problem. That's the issue. Is like people are saying like, oh, well, here are all these statistics. I don't. That's one story, and I don't know if I believe that one story. But look at all these statistics, and it's just you're comparing apples and oranges. It doesn't allow for clear communication, and I think that's a lot of where problems are. And the second thing about exceptionalism is is that like the American dream, like American society, North American society loves to make you believe that exceptionalism is like the solution to everything. And the thing is is yes, there are stories of exceptionalism, but how much harder was it for that black woman or for that trans woman or For that person who was navigating their disability, like how much harder was it? And should it not have been Mm. because of the issues that exist within our system and understanding that while there are people that persevere, the system itself is extremely unfair and in no way just because someone made it should that justify the pain that they had to go through to get there
0: yeah, I think that's I think that's really great that you say that. and And I just have to go back to what you were saying about a lot of the stats and and kind of the anecdotal um, statistics that exist. The one thing that I think has been one of the most uncomfortable, parts Mm -hmm. of all of this is that we expected racism to be so outside of our own personal worlds. Mm -hmm. We expected it to be something that happened to other people, was happening in the States. We know it's happening in Canada, but even in that, we're not, we don't feel witness to it in the same way. And then things like Jagmeet Singh getting thrown out of the House of Commons uh, for calling out racism and we have all of these things that if you're if you're Canadian, you might understand that if you're American and don't, that's totally okay. Just saying, like there are there are actual racist issues happening on a political level um, mm-hmm. for us in big ways here. But we're starting to see family members, people we love, friends start to speak out and recognizing now that, oh gosh, I thought this conversation that I was having was with this open world of people that were not in my actual bubble of people. Mm-hmm. And now I might actually have to talk to people in my relational world. How do we, do you have any advice for somebody who, if you if you haven't heard our first episode together, you and I actually met in a room of people and you were videotaping it and you stepped out from that video camera to talk about race mm-hmm. in a room of white women. And it was an incredibly powerful moment for myself. I know it was for you as well. It was, it really has grown a lot from there, but that was a space that you must have felt and known. This is uncomfortable. I'm actually working here. I'm working at this event. This is a room of white women. That is a, it's almost like being with your peers and having to be that one person that says something Mm -hmm. or in that family dinner table and have to be that one person that speaks out about your great uncle Larry. Like it's difficult. Do you have any advice for navigating that?
1: I think when it's people that you love and care about, it's important to remember that there is levels of kindness that you can come in with. And I think the other thing too is it's really easy to, I think, get really in your head once you've learned the things and to forget the person that you were before you unlearned it all. So when I'm entering into a conversation where I'm recognizing that there's a lot of unlearning to happen, I just remind myself of the person, like, who didn't know all these things and what she looked like when she was unlearning. And I try to, like, think of that when it comes to the compassion that I hold before entering that conversation. And I think that's how, like, navigating the personal ones are made easier. Because then it's not tone policing. It's just recognizing, listen, you love someone. And because you love someone, you don't want them to go out into the world hurting people with their words and ideas. Mm, Yes. And that's what's going to happen. And they're going to hurt people. And because you love them, you want to stop them from hurting people. So you're going to approach that with that kindness.
0: I wish we looked at things more that way, kind of that, you know, we've had a lot of conversations about call out versus call in and just that difference, that that difference of calling out being like, I want to knock you off your block, like, and calling in being like, let's build this stronger for you. Like, how do you be better? And I think- I'm so glad you said that because tying it into like, this is a loving action. And maybe you don't have the words at that moment of time at the dinner table, but maybe you speak to them afterwards and you say, you know what? I I remember you mentioned this and I just wanted to follow up with some information. I know it's like new or whatever, however you want to approach it. But I think that it's just important that we take those steps in loving care for those who are in that place. And I know for myself, like I've had to have those weird kind of moments when my friends start new diets. And I'm like, I remember when I was a diet girl and I talked about the calories and everything. And I had no idea how damaging that was to the room around me. And and you're right. You kind of have to remember that person before you knew and before you kind of did the unlearning, before you did the work and approach it with that kind of compassion. But also maybe, would you say, creating boundaries if that person is
1: unreceptive? Is it okay to kind Absolutely. Of protect I, ourselves. I think so you bring up the the very first event that we met at and I want to like bring up one little thing that happened on the next day that maybe or maybe not you remember. So on the first day we were having that fireside chat and you know someone brought up how they were being called out almost for not being racially diverse and how that wasn't their intention and I was like hey. There is some truth to that because I'm speaking to a very white room right now. And and that was a really good conversation. But the very next day, there was a panel on investing in homes. And I don't know if you remember this, but there was it was a conversation about, you know, what it means to be a woman, like buying your first house or buying property. And one of the pieces of advice that was given was if you look at neighborhoods that you know aren't that developed but you start to see a Starbucks or like these stores come up around there you should invest into those homes and this was like advice given at this conference by someone on a stage and i was like this is gentrification you're talking about gentrification like you're literally telling a room full of very easily like based on the ticket price like Wealthy majority white women to go into neighborhoods that have historically not been great, look for the stores that start to pop up and buy into that because you know the property value is going to go up.
0: I do remember that now. I do remember that now. And it's so funny that you mentioned that because it's one thing that I've noticed. So I live in a town that is split by like north, south, east, west. Yeah. And it is one of the first things that when people will say, What end of town would you recommend? And it is quite common that people will say, just avoid the West End. Just don't do the West End. You'll be fine. I've said those words. Yeah. I'm telling you, the West End is the most culturally diverse. And it is the most probably lack of funded and supported community And that's why we tell people not to go there because it's much better, cushier, nicer in different ends of town. When my son, when he was diagnosed with learning disability and had to leave French immersion school, our options was one English school or private schools. In the English school, when I started asking people about the school, what their thoughts were and things Mm -hmm. like that. I had an overwhelming amount of people who told me, it's just an ESL school. It's English as a second language. Like, it's a really low end. Like, it's not a good experience in that way. You're not really going to get that same level of education. Like, it was a lot of, again, like, this huge stigmas. And then I went and I met with the principal, and I remember he said to me, this school is a representation of true society. It act- And that's what makes people uncomfortable, is that we actually have people yeah. who— live below, you know, like a standard of like living wages. And we have people who are, are in middle class. We have people who are refugees here. And we he's, he's like, and then we have one kid that shows up in a Lambo in the morning. Like this is a representation of true society. But even in our language around things like real estate and stuff, that mm-hmm. was like, I honestly only recognized it last week that I'm like, how many times have I said to people when they've asked me about moving to Guelph that I've said, all ends are great, just avoid the West End. Because mm-hmm. it's been so instilled in us to say- don't go to these areas that are culturally taken over by, you know, not white people. Like, and it was so, I, I sat there and I said to my husband, we were actually driving through the West End. And I'm like, I just can't stop thinking about how many times I've told people not to live in this end of town.
1: Yeah, here's the other part. When that statement was said, I remember putting my hand up and saying, for anyone who's like ethical or wants to be ethical, I suggest you Google the term gentrification and understand what that means. And that's all I said because I was like, I have no more capacity than that. And you it, couldn't do it. I couldn't do it, and I just remember feeling like that no one received that.
0: So let's just actually. I'm. Just, I just googled it quickly so we can say it out for people. Gentrification is the process of renovating and improving a house or district so that it conforms to middle class taste. There's a couple other versions as well. Is that what you would consider
1: it as well for you? Or does it
0: feel a little bit more...
1: That's a very polite definition of gentrification. But it's really like strategic city planning that pushes out lower income immigrant neighborhoods. And, uh, like, upgrades it um, into something that makes more middle-class white folk feel safer and feel like they want to mm-hmm. invest into a neighborhood. So the um, communities that have actually built the culture and the roots of that neighborhood are pushed out and no longer can afford to live in the places that they called home. It's what gentrification actually is. It's. Well, when you say it like that, holy <laughs> crap. Yeah. And it's, and it's yeah. really, it's really bad in Toronto. Like we, we call Toronto one of the most diverse cities and you know, the, there's very, very big like segmentation that happens, but you know, that, that could be a whole another conversation, but I it think. It really could,
0: but it's important. I think for us to remember around our conversations around like, what are the safe neighborhoods in Toronto? Mm-hmm. What are like the, and just looking at it in a different way and also recognizing, am I just trying to come in to, I understand that real estate is like investments and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But if it's also doing it, like just hearing it in the sense of it's actually pushing out what is, you know, a community of people in an affordable area, pushing them out so it can be, you know, a real estate investment. I can see where that is flawed. And I've never heard it positioned that way before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have like a couple minutes left. One thing is like, I knew that we would, I honestly had like two questions prepared and I didn't even ask them. This is kind of what happens when you and I talk, but I kind of want to give you the floor because we've had a year since all of this and Mm -hmm. halfway through this, I was like, you know what I should have done? I should have let you run this podcast because you just have so much that you could lead this with, but kind of give us like, just take the floor for a moment. What is it that you would like to say kind of like a year later, um, everything going on right now? What is something you really want people to take away? Okay. Okay. I know. No prep for that whatsoever. (laughs) Please take the floor.
1: (laughs) Taking the floor. The floor is mine. I, a year since that podcast recording, I will say that I am personally really proud of my voice that has grown. And I, whether it's conditioning, whether it's who I am, I have a tendency to thank a lot of people around me before I thank myself. So I'm going to first start with saying that I've done a lot of work in the last year and I'm really proud of the way that my voice has grown. And for everyone who is listening, who has been listening, I am grateful for you to be on this journey with me. The second thing is I'm going to repeat the disclaimer I said in the very first podcast Mm -hmm. episode, and that was that... Even for me to be here, for us to have these conversations, all of this is only possible because of the Black women that have been around me throughout university, because of the Black educators, Mm -hmm. because of the Black activists, Mm -hmm. and the like. just really the Black and Indigenous folks who have paved the way and done so much work for decades before I have even Mm -hmm. existed, for us to have a very cushiony conversation around all of these things. And I think... Everyone needs to remember that always and often, especially when having conversations around race and equity and anti-racism, because it's really easy to pat ourselves on the back and say, we've done the good work Mm -hmm. without recognizing where it comes from and why we have the privilege of talking about it without potentially our lives being taken. Right. That was like in the 70s, in the 80s, like (laughs) as... as not far long ago as that, that could have been a very real possibility. And even right now, if you are someone who is Black, like, that's still a reality. So, yeah. That is— I mean, you say it like (laughs) that, we're all scared to talk because we're scared to get
0: it wrong. And there's Mm -hmm. people who are scared to talk because they're scared for their lives. And there's huge difference there. Exactly.
1: So always, always remembering that, I think, is really important. And then I think the other thing, too, is, like, just— Get out of your head a little bit. We're so in our heads about these conversations because it's been ingrained to us, especially if you grew up in Canada. And I I know we're talking a lot about Canada and there might be a global audience listening, but if you grow up in a Western world or in a city that champions or claims to champion diversity, the kind of conditioning that happens when you're in school is something that takes years to unlearn and you have to just get out of your head and really look at the way that you've been conditioned and understand that that's going to be a long process and that process doesn't have to happen publicly on the internet i'm so grateful yes. that when like my lear- unlearning process Mostly happened offline. So like there's no like mm. internet proof of it, I guess. But not to say, not to say that it wasn't all cringe. It was very cringe. But it's as my friends Vivian K says um and Jam Gamble, they said this on a live they did oh, together. Oh, I love those women so much. They're amazing. And those lives were so good. But they said like your unlearning is our re-traumatizing. And that like I, I want people to remember that if you are unpacking all of the things that you're unlearning publicly for the world to see before you even process it, you could be re-traumatizing the folks who have been doing the work or been um, unlearning all of that for a really long time. And then the final thing that I will say is to anyone who's listening who is Black or Indigenous or a person of color, it feels like, at least for me, because I can only speak for myself, there is finally a permission slip almost given by the world for us to truly be our authentic selves and speak our truths in a way we have never been allowed to speak before. And there is a huge weight that also comes with understanding that, like, how do you finally be yourself when you've spent your whole life not being able to be yourself? And there's an unlearning that comes with that. There is a weight that comes with that. There is trauma that comes with that. There is processing that comes with that. And if you are, like, if you're a non-Black person of color, there's racial trauma that you're reliving right now, even in the wake of all of this, because it's bringing it up and that's okay and that's valid. And, like, just give yourself the space to exist in that as you're navigating this, because that's what I'm doing. It's been, I think, a month and I still haven't necessarily unpacked everything that I feel I still don't necessarily know exactly how I want to talk about a lot of the things I want to talk about because I'm still learning what it means to have a conversation like this where I'm truly completely unfiltered and feel safe enough to do so even when speaking to someone who is a white woman which before this, like you heard our conversation a year ago, it's if you really listen and hear the way I speak, I'm so filtered in that. You were even, you would
0: say things like, because you asked the question and because you've kind of like, like put it that way, like I will speak on this instead of just speaking. Like there, there was definitely now listening back, Mm -hmm. like I could sense that. And because, I mean, what a lot of people don't know is behind the scenes, you've been huge in my life in the last year. And we've had a lot of what for me would be uncomfortable conversations I've gotten really comfortable with with you and you don't hold back from me at all. Mm -hmm. And it's been been so needed and so necessary. And I think that as a white woman, you're starting to recognize that people have tiptoed around us. We've been Mm -hmm. tiptoed around in order to be appeased for a really long time. And when you made that post about people being upset about wearing masks, recognizing how many folks have been wearing masks their whole lives, just trying to fit in, just trying to not have their their color be the main stage, or like have these different biases rule their world. It's, it was in a phenomenal post, but really made you to like look back and really think about that. These are not things that we've ever had to deal with, and so these stories are incredibly important. And mm-hmm. it, and it's more than just you know us learning and unlearning. It's a it's a dedication to unmasking people to feel like they can have conversations with us unfiltered, that they know that it's not about us creating safe places for them. It's them feeling like they finally, like understanding that they have permission to speak Mm -hmm. and be heard potentially for the first time. Like that must be really, really, really a a lot for so many. And, And just knowing that there's, while we feel like we have this massive unlearning happening, there's also a whole other side where they're also going through it as well, right? We're all kind of like in totally different ways, part of this experience. And I think it's really important that we, we take those roles seriously. Yeah. But yeah. So, well, you know, our (laughs) 35 minute podcast went to 56 (laughs) minutes. That's fine. (laughs) I knew it. Okay, but tell us what are you doing next? Because I know that you still you do a lot of other stuff as well. We I've you know you I know you do a lot of other work, but do you also run some do you have any new cool things happening in your
1: world and work world that you want to talk about before we wrap her up? I am doing like what's coming up next is a lot of workshops around not just creating, but also telling your story um, and why the importance of our stories are really important and then also how to tangibly create what needs to go along with those stories so whether that's videos or photos or the writing I'm working on a lot of stuff in relation to that so depending on when you're listening you will either be seeing things coming soon or uh you will be seeing them blossom on blossom on blossom I don't know now (laughs) you will you will see them come to fruition (laughs)
0: and they can find you at just ask Jenny, right? um, Instagram, the best way to find you. So check her out at just ask Jenny. I am excited. I feel like a year from now, I'm going to listen back to this and I'm going to cringe at some moments. And then I'm going to, we're going to look back and we're going to see how much has changed a year from now. That's my hope. That's really, Mm -hmm. truly my hope is that I love that we're kind of um, in this to grow. And I just can't thank you enough. I know I've I mean, if we're not cringing, we're not changing. So, yes, let's be our own (laughs) best hypocrites. Love that. So, well, thank you once again for offering your voice, for sharing it with us, for being a return guest. That I didn't scare you away (laughs) this time. And uh, thank you for all you do. Thank you for the work that you're doing behind the scenes that is bringing so much digestible information that we can take in in like 30 seconds without even recognizing Mm -hmm. how much you really pour into this work. So thank you for doing all of that. Everyone, go and check out Just Ask Jenny. She is um, an amazing human being and freaking gorgeous. If I can just say, and her images are like, honestly, I just love your Instagram too. If I could just take a little aesthetic second for that, it's really, really pretty. (laughs) So also that, (laughs) and just thanks for being here and we'll see you all next week.